Welcome everyone to episode 81 of the Bodybuilding Down Under podcast. You're joined yet again by myself, Jack, and DC. We'll have a, a bit more of a complete episode again next week with uh, hopefully both Lawrence and DY back on the podcast. And yeah, you are um, beginning to miss them at all or you are thinking about them off air? I don't know, man. I reckon I'm, we can probably go another week without him. What do you think? Yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> I mean, it is no, getting no, to no. the end of the year. It's our contract renewal at the end of 2023. So <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, we're we're at the helm of the ship, right? So, you mm. know, maybe we need to uh, to sort of uh, renegotiate our contract terms. <laughs> you know, I think there needs to be a few extra, you know, physio treatments from Lawrence here and there. Mm. And, um, you know, DY needs to shout us with a few extra KFC feeds here yeah. and there as well so i mean i i know what i'm arguing when the uh when the contract renewal comes around mm. i remember yeah the uh last year you got some um, some very favorable things written into your contract which we'll keep off air but yeah you yeah no you we won't, took a we won't delve into one. into those no i mean yeah we only talk about that on on my only dan's yeah 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 <laughs> Well, uh, we have a few different topics to discuss today, which I'm looking forward to. And I think one that I thought I'd bring up initially is just uh, a recent purchase that I had made with uh, one of the Black Friday sales. And that was actually an Apple Watch. Like I've, I haven't really had a Apple Watch or never had an aura ring or anything of that fashion. And I think in my first comp prep, I used a, a Fitbit and the strap on that broke very early on into my comp prep and I took the straps off and just had it in my pocket for the the whole comp prep. So <laughs> that was as sophisticated as I got for that back in 2018. And then in uh, in 2021, my second comp prep, I, I used one of Tierra's old Garmin's, which wasn't even a digital display. It was just, it just said the time and the steps. That was it. So, um, and now I've decided to upgrade for this current prep and yeah, we had a we had a discussion the other day and I was going to go with the aura ring, but then I like you didn't necessarily convince me, but you just said some things about the aura ring which made sense how it might might benefit me to go with the Apple Watch. Mm, yeah, so I mean, I I look back at the first prep that I did, I was using an Apple Watch then as a step counter. Then the second prep I did was a Garmin, and I still have that, although I am a little bit more flexible with my step count in the off season now that, you know, I'm in a building phase when I'm moving into a mini cut, I'll certainly begin to start, you know, tracking my steps again, just as a means of accounting for overall energy expenditure and, and uh, an overall need as well. But I have also, yeah, used an aura ring and I, I'm, look, I'm a big fan of, of the aura ring as well, but I did find that I have to take it off very frequently to train with, and at least with the Apple watch for, let's say lower body based movements, I could keep that thing on, and it could accrue the steps that I was getting within a session because I used to try and get up and do some walking between between sets just as a means of like keeping myself energized within the workout. I know you're essentially expending more energy by walking around, but I I towards the tail end of prep, I found that if I was sitting on on you know the leg extension, I could happily Did sit there for five, six minutes. <laughs> yeah. So I wanted to get up and just, you know, get moving in between and sort of help to keep myself mentally ready and, and there. And I'm like, well, if I can account for these steps whilst I'm in a training session, I can get an extra, you know, thousand or 2000 steps. 
may as well track those. And I couldn't do that with your ring. Like, I mean, even, even sitting on the leg extension and having that ring on and, you know, pulling myself into the bench, like I would, I would notice that I would, um, I'd scratch the ring and it would just be not very comfortable. So mm. I guess I did persuade you to go more with the watch, right? Yeah. Well, so far, so far, so good. I don't regret that decision. Although I was just a little bit surprised at how I was expecting more customizability on the watch face. Like, for example, you can't even customize it so you can see steps. Like you can see the activity rings, but from my knowledge, you can't see steps. Yeah, you can. You can, okay. <laughs> you you so definitely can. <laughs> yeah, you just have to, like you can edit the the face front. So you can actually change the, I guess you could call it like not the wallpaper, but just the way that the, mm -hmm. the screen portrays. So it can show up your steps immediately. Like as soon as you bring it up towards your face to look down, it'll it'll showcase your step number rather than you having to like click it and mm. and and see where you're up to. I think, yeah, I, I can just, I will show you how to. Yeah, cool. I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take you under my wing and show you how to use it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I, I literally spent an hour trying to, trying to Google it and YouTube it, but apparently my skill's up to scratch in that department. Yeah. But yeah, that'll be super useful because that was one of the main complaints I had about it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty damn sure you can. I'm pretty sure I, I did it on mine. So mm. look, maybe I'm, maybe I'm wrong and, and I'm getting these watches <laughs> confused. I should have sold the Garmin to you instead of the, yeah. <laughs> but no, let's all have a look. Which Apple watch model did you have? Like series six? Oh seven? man, I've got no idea. Like this is, uh, this is 20, 2019. So right. yeah, we've been so like, Series, series yeah 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 series two <laughs> something like that cool well yeah i might give a slightly more complete review as time goes on because i'm keen to see like in my sets like where my heart rate gets to like my resting heart rate at the moment is roughly like 60 beats per minute which is kind of where where it needs to be which yeah. i'm a little surprised that i honestly thought even though i'm physically fit i thought it would be a little bit higher considering i'm at my heaviest at the moment Mm. But I'm especially interested to see like how high it gets, like after a squat set or a leg press mm. set. Um, some of the the metrics that I thought was so in, so interesting to evaluate, like before, almost like a before and after in prep, right? So it's good that you've gotten it now because when you do start your prep, like at the end of your prep, you might be able to compare what was my average heart rate before commencing a prep, and then what was my average heart rate in let's say the final week approaching your your final show, you know, of, of peak week. So from from memory, I think my heart rate in sort of average heart rate in in the off season is like in the in the in the 60s or something like that. Um, and then uh, basically uh, in, at the very end of prep, it was something like 38 or or, or something beats beats per minute, which is so low. Yeah, like ridiculous. I can almost think back to those times where it would have been that, that low, and mm. you actually feel like there's you can actually almost count the the, the time between heartbeats or, yeah. or like count the time between breaths. Like I used to go sometimes where I would think, have I breathed in the last like 20, 20 seconds, like breaths per minute got down to like 12 or something like that. It's just that metabolic adaptation kicking in so aggressively to try yeah. and conserve energy expenditure. Mm. Even, um, yeah, even on like the diet break weeks as well, like seeing if it comes up and then comes back down like depending on the adaptivity of the person that's that's super interesting yeah yeah absolutely is is um is energy expenditure within within a workout something that you ask for as a metric or that you will look at in terms of your your athletes 
do you ask them to provide you that sort of information? Not typically just because like it, I guess it caters on whether they have that metric available, but yeah, the short answer is no, I don't. Yeah, no, that's, that's an interesting one to talk about as well, because, um, you know, the, one of the, I guess one of the caveats associated with having a, an Apple watch or a Garmin or, you know, a Fitbit is often that these devices kind of spit out these numbers to, 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 to represent the, the amount of calories, you know, burnt within a workout. And I remember when I was, I was sort of Apple watches had first started to make sort of more of an emergence and it was such a sort of a novelty to have them and, and be hitting your sort of activity ring every day. And, mm. and, uh, you know, it was almost like a somewhat of a boast associated with like, Oh, you know, I burnt like 700 calories in my workout today. Like, what did you burn? Like that kind of thing. Yeah. And I mean, there's there's plenty of, of studies out there that look at there being wild inaccuracies associated with the the calories mm. uh, expended or represented by by these devices, and even you know what how many calories a Garmin might expend or tell you it expense you know you expend is is vastly different to you know an Apple Watch as an example. So it's it's really hard to to truly know whether you're burning that caliber of calories. And, um, and therefore, you know, it might not even be a metric to pay much attention towards as, as yeah. interesting it may be. I mean, I think most comp prep coaches don't, don't really ask or the ones that I am aware of don't ask mm. them for how many calories you burnt within a workout. It's not even a metric that, you know, I would even, I would even think about getting from my athlete from a device. Mm. Um, it's Honestly, more about, I, of... I thought you did ask for it. That's why I was tentatively saying no, because I didn't want to offend you, but like, yeah, I, I've never asked for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the calorie, it's kind of like, yeah, like in a run, what's more important, the amount of calories you burn or your time in that run or time in that sprint? It's the same with resistance training as well. You're looking at the performance metric, which isn't calories burned. Yeah, 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 exactly right. And I guess looking at it from the perspective of, you know, why, why would you not assess that data if you're trying to create a controlled calorie deficit via you know, a, a contest prep timeline, like why would you not want to get that metric? And I think probably the main reason is because we just can't accurately capture it unless we're doing something like, uh, like a CPET, which is like a cardiopulmonary exercise test. You know, I'm linked up to this device where I breathe out carbon dioxide. It measures the amount of liters and, and I, it, you know, measures the amount of liters of, of oxygen intake, uh, and corresponding that with heart rates. Um, you know, that that's, <laughs> we're not hooking our, our athletes up to these things while they're doing their workout nor their cardio. So Plus it's, it's a then, lot more efficient to expend energy by other methods than resistance yeah. training. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. And that's why I think the merit of looking at, you know, tracking steps is such a, uh, a feasible means of determining someone getting an idea around determining energy expenditure, uh, as opposed to wanting to ask for this specific information, you know, I'd almost say that like towards the tail end of a contest prep, the amount of calories you're burning in a workout, I, I would anticipate to be pretty low as well. Yeah. You know? um, Especially if you add up like the actual amount of time your heart rate is elevated. Like let's say a set takes 45 seconds and you do, I don't know, 20 sets in a workout. Like it's not, not much, is it? It's not much yeah. exercising time. Yeah, 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 exactly right. And I, I think there's been times where I've looked at the Apple Watch that I had and, you know, I did a strength-based session and maybe that session's an hour and a half or something like that. And, you, you know, it's telling me I burnt like 800 calories. And I'm like, no, there's no way I've burnt 800 calories. Half of this, like three quarters of this workout, I've been sitting resting between sets for like three to five minutes. <laughs> like I'm not burning that much within this workout. So I think mm. it can be some wild inaccuracies associated with that. Yeah.
for sure. I agree. Cool. So I think the next topic was going to be based on an exciting new study, which you were referencing. And I believe I've seen maybe like Menno and Mike Isretel briefly mention it, but I haven't looked at it in detail. So I think there were some elements that you wanted to run through on that topic. Yeah, I just thought this would be an interesting uh, conversation between between you and I. And uh, it's just an interesting study, something to, to talk a little bit more about. I think uh, the study itself, you know, on paper, the 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 applications or the practical takeaway can sometimes be quite sort of warped unless we you know really kind of delve into it a little bit more so uh, this particular study uh, it's called the effects of different weekly set uh, progressions on muscular adaptations in trained males uh, is there a dose effect or dose response effect and it is by uh, Alison uh, et al and basically this study sort of looks at the I guess the the benefits of various uh, volume volume amounts and its benefit towards uh, squat strength and and quad hypertrophy. So I'll sort of delve into a little bit more, you know, sort of painting painting the picture in regards to the study itself. There were so three groups essentially. There was a a set, a set group that ran uh, twenty two sets of sort of quad volume uh, across the course of a twelve week intervention period. There was another group that ran also 22 sets of, of quad volume, but every second week they increased the number of sets by four sets. And again, this is over the course of a 12 week stint. And then the last set group basically, well, the last group there started at 22 sets as well and added six sets of quad volume every fortnight, again, for the course of the 12 week stint. So it's sort of almost by the end of this the, this, the study, you're comparing a constant group that ran 22 sets of quad volume to a group that's running 52 sets of, of quad volume by the end of the, the 12 week stint. Now, like we laugh because we talk about, you know, like, oh man, my quad workout, like 15 sets per week. We're talking 52 working sets for quads. Now that's not, that's not just uh, like squats. That's the, the, the exercises that they were prioritizing within those sessions was a combination of uh, back squatting, uh, leg pressing and, and leg extensions. And to kind of paint the picture around how the study was ran in terms of also like the timeline here, what they did is they ran basically like a two week baseline period across all participants. Uh, and within those participants, they sort of did their various, you know, testing. So things like muscle, you know, quad thickness via ultrasound, um, uh, squat testing, cross-sectional area of the quads, you know, things like that. Uh, in the sort of the second phase, they did a, uh, a volume reduction phase. So the premise here was, I guess, to sort of promote recovery from, I mean, these all these individuals were quite well-trained and you know, a lot of them can squat three plates a side. And so they were certainly not you know, like newbies when it comes to, you know, training as a whole. Um, the purpose of this phase was to sort of, I guess, wash out, wash out fatigue and sort of get them ready for the, con you know, the conducting of the study. Uh, the next two week stint, they did a familiarization state, uh, phase where basically they ran a two week stint of of getting used to running the 22 sets of, of essential quad volume via those three exercises that I that I mentioned, and then they 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 started in you know transitioning into the intervention intervention phase, which was 12 weeks, and that's where they had you know either one group set a baseline, one group increased four sets per per fortnight, one one group increased uh, six sets per fortnight, and then at the very end of the study, they they do they retested these metrics again, you know one RM uh, squat cross-sectional area and uh, and quad quad thickness here as well and what was um also also I should should also mention there that that um it was a very quad biased and quad uh 
you know, specialization program. They were instructed to train their upper body on like other days, like rest days, kind of like ad hoc, just train upper body on other days and, and a little bit of hamstring volume as well. So we have to sort of consider this in the context of, it's not like they were running, you know, 52 sets of every muscle group across the entirety of this, of this 12 week stint. It was mostly, you know, specialization uh, volume. But the interesting, I guess, aspect to this study is that there was a dose response associated with an improvement in strength and, and hypertrophy in the quads with the increasing volumes. So, you know, in other words, the, 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 the volumes of the groups that did run, you know, the, the, the group that ran the higher volume uh, did, did see the, the most progress in terms of, you know, what we care most about, which is obviously, you know, increase in, in lean tissue. If we had to kind of average the, the sets off amongst these groups, obviously the constant ran the 22 sets, uh, that, you know, group number one, number two, uh, the group number two, if we average off the sets over the, you know, 12 week stint, they ran 32 sets and the last group there ran, um, ran 37 sets. Now, what, what I was thinking more, more about in relation to this study is that we don't know if the benefits were associated with the actual model of increasing sets per, per fortnight, as in, you know, a linear progression in volume or whether the benefits just came from an average increase in working sets. You know what I mean? Um, secondly to that, it's hard to actually also, I should state that the, the, the group number three, the, the ones that ran the highest volume that peaked at the 52 sets of quad work per, per like those last two, you know, two weeks, they also had the highest degree of variability amongst individuals in terms of their sort of like response. In other words, some seem to respond, you know, more highly than, than others to these kinds of, of volumes. And I should also preface that it, it so I think one sort of caveat to this study here is it's hard to know whether, you know, maybe, maybe sort of the 52 sets wasn't actually as beneficial as, as the, as the third group when there were a couple of weeks earlier into the, you know, the progression and they were on that kind of verge of, you know, burning out. So that's that's where I think there's some some potential caveats associated with this study. Um, think about like the time constraint associated with yeah. doing that many that many working sets. Um, you know, if you're wanting to like if you if you were training your other body parts with full intensity and normal volume, then could you really recover from 37 sets a week? Hundred percent, exactly right. So you know, I think maybe taking the the study like this and and just sort of wildly applying it across all muscle groups at once is just like a, an absolute <laughs> you're just setting yourself up for absolute disaster mm -hmm. um what maybe maybe what this sort of study does sort of paint the picture towards is is perhaps running specialized programs where volumes for certain muscle groups are you know much higher and volumes for certain muscle groups are lower you know maybe there's merit to that you know um uh, there's this whole kind of like craze at the moment around super low volume training, you know, like running yeah. only two sets for a hack squat or one set for a hack squat. And, you know, I do think that there's, there's merit to, to running, you know, lower, lower volumes. Uh, essentially there is a recovery ceiling for every single athlete out there as to what they can, you know, adequately recover from. Um, but I think it does kind of paint the picture to a lot of individuals that kind of less is, is more all the time. And I don't actually think that that's always the case. You know, I, I also want to preface this, that when, when we talked about, you know, someone implementing like 52 sets, it's not 52 sets of like back squats, like something as hectic as back squats, 
it's that that volume was distributed across the leg press, the leg extensions as well. And obviously they were training quads multiple times per week to get in that frequency too. Um, but I think they mentioned reps and reserve or intensity or anything. Yeah. So that what they, what they depicted is they, they, they elicited, or they tried to elicit across their subjects, uh, training at roughly two reps in reserve. However, the last working set was basically supposed to be taken to failure. So when, whether that was a product of fatigue accruing across the volumes as they progress within the workout, um, you know, it's obviously quite possible in that regard, but these guys were like, they were, they, they, these people were training hard. They weren't, mm. you know, just kind of fluffing around and, and taking it easy in that regard. But, um, you know, I think some of the, some of the, so the caveats associated with this is like, firstly, you know, time constraints. I mean, who's going to spend a ridiculous amount of time in the, in the gym. I do think that it's also harder to gauge proximity of, of true fatigue slash failure, uh, when you're doing such high volumes, you know, yeah. I think it's mentally harder to gauge your proximity to failure when, you know, you're on set eight of your back squats, you're up, you know, set nine of your back squats, like mm. that's a lot of damn volume. And um, one one thing that was interesting, I, I didn't actually look too much into this in terms of the study, but, you know, just like if I, if I think about this from the premise that if I'm running multiple stints of this kind of training block, like what's my exposure to, to sort of overuse, overtraining, uh, potentially, you know, getting getting injured, injured as well. <laughs> Would you say rhabdo? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe for someone who's like, you know, just not trained, they go, there's completely vanilla to train. First block of training ever. Straight into 52 sets. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How good. Um, but it's just, yeah, that's crazy volumes, right? This is certainly this a study that uh, show uh, that 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 pushes volumes up to this high. That basically this assesses the the efficacy of such hard training, you know, hard, like vast amounts of volumes in 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 in, uh, in 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 research, I guess you could say. Yeah, I think it's also we can extrapolate this to other sources of research as well, where people might see it online or they might cherry pick something because it is getting more and more common these days for people to do reference studies on social media and people are like, Oh, this study got that result. Therefore I'm going to apply it to my training, whether it be supplemental or, or, re or nutrition or, or exercise related. And I think it's always important granted the, like, unless you've may, maybe gone to uni and, and had a course on uh, analyzing research, then it is very difficult to self teach yourself that. Um, I'm not sure of a course that would help you out with that, but mm. that's personally why I really like, for example, the mass research review, because it basically does that all for you. And all you need to do is read the the summaries that they provide and they break it down. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's so true. So true. You know, I think with, with this study in mind, if you are an athlete who wants to progress across like multiple muscle groups at once, this kind of style of training is is not not for you you know what i mean yeah. like um if i wanted to approach my my uh training with the mindset of running a very highly specialized training block where i bring my volumes down really low on some things and and ramp it up for you know as an example in this case you know for quads i have to be okay with the mindset of maybe not making much if any progress with other you know muscle groups um which, you know, you apply that specifically to a bodybuilding populace. It's hard to sell that, I feel, you know, sure. because I think most individuals need to train more than, you know, they want to build more than just one thing, you know, to their physique. Uh, I, I sort of look at it from, from and sort of argue this point where it's like, well, 
okay, you know, maybe if I if I push my quad volumes up excessively high, I make, you know, tremendous you know, quad volume. And maybe if I, uh, sorry, quad progress, but but maybe if I, you know, pull my volumes down on everything else, I'm making like no progress. Is that is that extra little bit of quad quad growth worth uh, pulling my progress down on potentially other other muscle groups, uh, you know, in favor of just biasing a target tissue? Like maybe if you're that individual that only needs to grow one muscle group, and you special and you run these kind of specialized program blocks, but you know, I think if it was it was applied over the course of like a twelve month stint, and someone employed slightly lesser volumes that were more manageable manageable and focused on maybe adding the occasional set here and there to, you know, said muscle groups that they want to, they want to grow and maybe run somewhat of a slightly, you know, uh, uh, biased block. You know, for example, in my case, I'm running higher volumes for my, for my back work, but I'm not running excessively low volumes for everything else. Cause I still want to grow in these areas. Uh, I, I do think that's a more practical and a relevant approach to, to program design than something like these ridiculously high volumes. And obviously, I think that the, the purpose of the study is not to say, hey, you know, you guys need to be running 52 sets. But I think some of the take home from this is that like the body is pretty robust and you, you may be actually able to handle a little bit more volume than what, what you think you, you can. Mm. And, 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 and it may actually involve, it may actually, uh, it may actually cause a little bit extra hypertrophy, I, I guess, at the end of the day. And it is a variable to, to improve upon, you know, over time. There is a ceiling to it based on recoverability, but you know, adding that extra set of, you know, arms or extra set of quads or something like that is is certainly a viable option in terms of making growth. Yeah. Yeah. I think potentially like the delts and the arms are maybe two of the muscle groups or maybe calves as well, where you probably could get reasonably close to that set number uh, without too much impact to other muscle groups. Maybe I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not going to personally try it myself, but I think the other interesting aspect is the anecdotal, um, point of view from people who do run low volumes and they get great results. And, and that's partially, I mean, that's the definition of the, the bro, bro science, like someone getting great results doing a particular method and then people jumping on that bandwagon and forming that chain. But um, yeah, like I, yeah, I do, I do, I wouldn't say I do low volume. Like my quads, quad sets at the moment is like 12 to 14, which is low-ish. But personally, I, I could not imagine tripling that. Like I, I couldn't imagine doing 36 sets a week because I would definitely have to scale back my intensity in order to make that work. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I, I uh, it's, it's clear as day that as your sets get heavy, you know, higher and higher, the fatigue demand also builds. Mm-hmm. So I think the the practicality of, of running this kind of, you know, training mesocycle is that, I mean, what if you're in in sort of the let's say you know you start your twelve week intervention period, and you're four weeks into it, and all of a sudden you have like two nights of absolutely horrendous sleep for whatever reason. The baby's crying, the you know you're stressed at work, like what you know whatever reason. It next two two weeks, I got to increase my working sets by another six on yeah. top of that. Like where am I? Like what 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 becomes that point where I'm trying to catch up? Like it's getting hard to keep up with this sort of this sort of amounts of volume. Mm. Um, I'm increasing the amount of times you know spent in the gym. It's probably not feasible for most individuals that have a full time job. They have kids. They have other responsibilities out there as well to you know increase their their working sets. Um, I think most of my, a lot of my athletes would be like, you want to, you want me to spend how much time in the gym? What? Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, it's just not, not feasible. Yeah, I agree. Um, and I think 
yeah, the takeaway for for many of the other listeners would be try and apply that same reasoning to other other research studies that you may see on Google or, or social media for sure. Mm. Um, but moving into another topic, this one, this question says, how do you go about tracking meals in the off season? And then how many, uh, how many meals is too much in the off season as well? Tracked out, I should say. Mm. So, so putting a line in the sand when you're in a contest prep is very easy, right? We know that in the contest prep, it's, it's typically no meals out. It's like everything that you consume, you want to be measured, manipulated and weighed and cooked, you know, by yourself. So you know exactly what's in it, right? Mm. So the line in the sand is, is right there. And then it's, it's clear as day when you then move into the off season, it's, it's almost trying to figure out where to draw that line now, right? Because I think in the in initial stages of let's say the recovery phase, let's say a six week stint at the start of of, of the off season, uh, you have people around you, you know, wanting to celebrate that time, celebrate your success, be on stage. They might have you might have a few you know places listed out that you'd want you want to go and eat at, uh, and and spend some time with a partner, friend, you know, whatever whatever it may be, family member. Um, you know, you tick those boxes off and now you're, you know, in the off season, uh, progressing towards your, your next you know, season, which might be a couple of years down the track. All of a sudden you, you have frequent occurrences of friends, family, and people around you that, that still want to go and eat out, you know, like it's, it's like how, you know, can we go and have this meal out? And you often will, will find multiple occurrences throughout the week where people will ask you those sorts of questions. And it's very easy to start feeling like you are spiraling out of control because, You've gone from a stint of you know 26 weeks, 30 weeks of, of no meals out. All of a sudden, it's like there's four, there's three, there's five, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden there's you know two days tracked, and, and the rest of the days are sort of quote unquote intuitive eating, uh, whether it's intuitive or not. <laughs> it depends on the person. So I think it's really important to draw that line in the sand. You know what 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 our established sense of balance is like as an athlete. You know with the mindset of wanting to do better in the next season. Let's say my goal is to win a pro card win an overalls, go to Worlds for WNBF or go to the Natural Olympia for the INBA, all of a sudden, essentially what my definition of balance is, is, is vastly different to someone else who maybe doesn't have any sort of stint of uh, or any idea with regards to their, like the performance-based goals. You know, as an athlete, my definition is gonna look of, of flexibility is going to look way different. You know, maybe flexibility for me uh, with those goals in mind needs to mean one meal out in the week that is like untracked or maybe two, you know, maximum two meals out in a week that is untracked. Maybe that's like a date night midweek, maybe like a cafe breakfast on the weekend, but maybe I can still roughly identify what I'm consuming within that meal based on, like you said, you know, banking some calories up, uh, still ensuring an adequate amount of protein, at least within that serve. Uh, within that, you know, that restaurant meal, uh, still getting an adequate amount of, let's say, protein frequency within the day. If I'm banking some calories up, I'm still, you know, maybe I'm, I'm protein fasting. I'm still getting, you know, an, an AM feeding of, of protein and then also getting one at lunch. And then I, you know, bank my calories up for my dinner. So you sort of, we've got considerations above and beyond just eating for simply eating and just eating for simply uh, like the flavor profile and the experience of being around others, which is important as well. But it's I almost always you know pose that question. It's like, what's what's that goal? Like, what's the next goal in mind in relation to to your physique or your performance? And 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 does your frequent behaviors and habits align with that target goal? It's like if I want to walk away and the goal is I want to take out a world title as a pro of a WNBF, 
but I'm eating, you know, eating out four meals per week and I'm not employing any sort of consistency or structure with my nutrition, I'm taking the piss. Like uh, there's just, there's just no, there's no way around it. Like I'm just, I'm not eating like an athlete. You know, mm-hmm. there's someone out there working harder than me right now. Like it's my, my behaviors are not aligned to my goals. You know, there's a big difference between, let's say I employ a, like a five week off, uh, sorry, a five, five year off season, a really standard off season. And my nutritional precision within that time frame or my consistency is like 70%. The big difference between being 70% and 90%, right? Uh, especially over the stint of like a five-year span. And so that's why I think it's really easy to get complacent in the off-season and like not track your nutrition and, you know, allow yourself to sort of eat out a little bit too frequently than what's ideal. And I think you kind of always need to bring it back to like, what's the ultimate goal? If the goal is that I'm happy to sacrifice a little bit of the result to enjoy some lifestyle gains, then that's cool. You know, you can walk away with it and and you can walk away from that and be okay with that. You got to be okay with that. But if the goal is very, very high and you're not employing the same degree of, of habit generation towards that, then there needs to be some sort of degree of realization. And I think that's when, you know, draw the line in the sand. Where's the line? Is it one meal out per week and the rest of it is all tracked? You know, I think that's where, like, again, speaking on that behalf, like draw the line in the sand. Where does it sit? Yeah, I think, yeah. And that's definitely a conversation to have with a client is like, you want to do this, then there's going to be ultimately be a ramification of that and um, deciding on what they want from their goals. Yeah, I couldn't really put it better than you there. And in terms of like, answering that question though how many is too much like too much is when it starts to impact your goals Uh, and you're you are the dictator of your goals like obviously my goal to do as best as i can next season um that's why i don't that's why i don't really eat out very much not the only reason i just i as an as a person i don't tend to eat out very much anyway but my aspirations in bodybuilding does play into that Mm. I usually sell it as like one, one meal out per week, I think is, is very ample. You know, it's like mm. you then value that meal a little bit more. You look forward to it. It's not like a spent spontaneous, you know, Domino's pizza during the week. Cause I can't be, you know, effed to cook kind of thing. It's like, well, no, I, I'm having my meal out. It's my date night with my partner. We do it every like Thursday, you know, whatever it is. And then, and then you enjoy that for what it is because it, it rolls around. You, you can't wait for that meal out. Cause you, you know, you have it every week and, and it's like a novelty, you know, versus, overdoing it and uh and then kind of like underachieve underachieving i guess you could put it i think the question i often pose to clients is like especially if the if the meal out is associated with a social occasion like why is it always food like can it be a different manner of socialization other than food um i think naturally as humans we most humans are pretty food focused and therefore they they love food they i love food too but it doesn't always need to dictate every social event yeah yeah, mm. absolutely. Um, do you think that there's almost merit to getting accustomed to pretty low palatable foods in the off season in terms of like a contest prep success? I think so. Like, I think it can have its merits for sure. And I think that there's something to be said for monotony of food intake in the off season as well. I think it does help with the routine and I think setting a routine, whether you're in prep or in the off season is, is key because it dictates how successful you are in hitting your nutritional targets consistently. Mm, yeah, I, I agree. I do agree there. I think 
I think the individuals who are extremely focused on making their foods as palatable as possible via all the extravagant, like the rubs, the condiments, the spices, the sauces, the this, the that, like I do think that it then can make prep harder because I feel like one's food focus just sits a little bit higher as a baseline in the off season. And then when sort of a contest prep rolls around where, you know, nine times out of 10, you're mostly defaulting to things that are, you know, relatively, relatively simple. Uh, mm. I think it can make things a little bit harder. Uh, I think there was a study I have to, I will butcher this and I'll have to bring it up in a future, future podcast. But I think it was a study speaking on behalf of the amount of ingredient items within a, within a food. And basically when a, when a, when a meal was kept more simplistic, like maximum three to four ingredients, uh, there was less like food focus surrounding these particular meals and less instances of overeating as well. So there's potentially I remember something... that one as well. Like I think I've seen Jackson Pios reference that because he's a big advocate for keeping things simple and reducing ingredient numbers in a meal. Um, yeah, yeah. So there's something to be said for you know just keeping things simple. Like especially if your if your goal is you know weight management and perhaps not overdoing it too much in the off season or you know managing a diet phase. Like keeping it simple, three four ingredients to a meal is is often like a great a great point of call. Mm. Um, and hey, salt, salt itself is is great. Like yeah. That's that's you know a lot of the time that's all you need, right? Yeah, I've, I've funnily enough you say that because I've literally in the past week I've just started using salt on my foods, mm. and it does make a big difference. I can definitely testify that. Yeah, <laughs> but I think also if you truly are struggling with food that much in the off season, like, and you have competed before already, like, then you need a bit more time in the off season before you head into prep. Like if, if you're feeling those desires to make things super fancy and it's, it comes from not necessarily, some people just genuinely love to cook and they, they like to play around with new things. That's, I would say is a little bit different, but if you're intrinsically that focused around food, uh, that you're slipping up all the time and you can't get a routine in check, then that is a bit of a red flag to, uh, take a bit longer. Yeah, definitely. And I think that speaks on behalf of just having a, you know, like a great relationship with, with food prior to the commencement of, of something like a condus prep and not even considering prepping until you have uh, a great relationship, you know, with, with food in that regard. Um, speaking on, on sort of the, I guess the, the concept of eating out and, and fasting and things like this, I'm pretty sure one of the, the sort of orange flags associated with binge eating or binge eating disorder is going long in going long periods of fasting um so you know i think like sometimes the concept of like banking calories up you know give you a little bit more nutrition for a meal out that 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 strategy to the wrong person is actually not a great not a great option or not a not a great goal uh not a great solution i should put it so you know i think the the concept of intuitive eating mindful eating banking calories up i think that in itself is somewhat conserved for someone who actually has generally a good relationship with food to begin with yes that they know to you know what is a good amount of calories to bank up what isn't a reasonable amount of food to eat in a meal out like i'm eating like an adult not not like someone and again not not to paint not to paint the picture of of um of you know binge eating is not eating like an adult it's it's, it's a serious condition but yeah. we won't obviously delve into that too too deep uh-huh. but you know i think the 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 premise here is that in a contest prep you are 
your food becomes your drug, right? Like it literally, you become an addict to food. That yep. is essentially what, what you become. So, you know, you better have a good relationship when you start it because mm. at the end, your relationship is a bit warped. Even for the people that are the best at, at managing their, their cravings, their hunger, still develop some, you know, wacky food tendencies towards their tail end of their prep. Yeah, yeah that's, I'm looking forward to sort of sadistically looking forward to seeing how it goes for me because as you know me well like i'm i'm fairly rigid when it rigid just because of who i am when it comes to food like i just i just do it um and it's become such a norm for me to eat the same thing every day and and be more so focused around okay um i need to fit in this quantity of food each day etc but i'm i because I, I know i will be food focused like i know i my food focus will increase but to what extent and how will I control that and how will it come across? Like those are all things that uh, will be, will be interesting. Cause I've changed as a, as a coach and as an athlete since I last competed as well. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. Like the, the tendencies or the behaviors that you start to pick up on when you are like, in, you know, implementing a diet phase and you're, and you're, and you're many weeks into it. Like all of a sudden you start thinking about like, oh, I wonder if like with my, you know, this dish, if I added in this and like I did this to it, or maybe if I swapped this instead, like this could be a great, and you're like, hang on. Like, I would never think about this when I'm in, you know, a building phase in the off season. Like I wouldn't even care. I just eat the same thing every day. It doesn't matter. Yeah. But because I'm in a contest prep, the idea of adding this, you know, X, Y, Z spice just sounds so amazing. And it's like, you just, you know, all these interesting behaviors that start to, you know, flood your brain when you're highly food focused. Mm. Yeah. Like different ways of like different amounts of time in the microwave, like different frequencies of stirring the oats. Yeah. Like, oh my God, dude, have you, oh my God, did you know there's an oven? And if I like bake my oats, <laughs> like my oats will come out like a different consistency. Like, holy That's shit. That's what I used to do. Yeah, 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 exactly. I used to cook them in the microwave. And then this is what I just need to, I won't be doing this next time, but I, I cooked them in the microwave the night before and then kept them in the fridge overnight. So they would retrograde and then wake up in the morning, chuck them in the oven so that they would have that nice crust on top. Yeah. Game changer. <laughs> and you got to top it with yogurt and, and fruit. But like, I just can't do that stuff because it, it becomes ritualistic. It becomes like more and more every single week. And it's best just to force yourself to stick to a routine, mm -hmm. which um, Tiara has done a great job of this, this um, she's 11 weeks or recently wrapped up 11 weeks of dieting. And um, it's kind of gone exactly to plan and super, regimented around um the quantities and she's basically eating the same thing 11 weeks straight um yeah. and it's not nowhere near as kind of much food volume as she might have consumed in the past so um i'll be i'll be aiming to do something similar and and maybe only change change the ingredients or the meal composition like when my macros change but otherwise keep keep it exactly the same yeah so what i did in prep is i pretty much built built myself a plan and then Every time, like, let's say I, I followed that plan for four to six weeks and then, or even potentially longer, but then if there was, let's say B, you know, B made an adjustment to my macros and it was a rather assertive, you know, drop to calories or carbohydrates, something like that, then I would restructure my meal plan to swap, swap a few things out, reduce this, move this around. And then I would just rerun that for, you know, multiple weeks until it was a further adjustment from Brandon again. And it's just, that was the easiest way to approach things rather than, I, I I think I made all the mistakes in my first prep where it was almost like, what could I do to fit my food, like fit various foods and every single combination of food 
and dishes and this and that into these macros. Like that's what determined my success of nutrition. Like, can I make nachos fit my, you know, my freaking macros today? I don't know. Let's try and do it. Like it's. Yeah. So similar to IFYM. Yeah, 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 exactly right. And look, I, I still got exceptionally lean, but my food focus was through the roof. And definitely there was way more turbulence in respect to like fiber intake as well, which affect body weight trends. Yeah. No doubt that potentially influenced Brandon's interpretation of the result each week. There's no doubt about it. Like, you know, if, I if that your midsection like responded more favorably to consistency as well. Or? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. I mean, frequency of, of bathroom trips. I mean, obviously that decreases in itself, but yeah. far, far less reported discomfort in terms of gastrointestinal, um, you know, motility was just gastrointestinal motility was just so much more comfortable. Just everything was kept consistent. You know, I, I remember the first prep I did, I, I had hip thrust in my program and there were times where I had like gastrointestinal distension and discomfort that I couldn't hip thrust. I had to like change the exercise up. Uh, I don't have to do any of that in my second prep. It's just like, because I, I learned from it and I can happily say that there was many things that I learned from, you know, going from that first prep to that second prep. And I feel like sometimes you, you know, as coaches, we try to, uh, we try to converse to athletes about these things and prevent them from making those, those mistakes. Like maybe we, we did, or we've seen others make, but sometimes you just have to kind of make that mistake yourself. Yeah. Right. Sure. Um, kind of like somewhat of a trial and error. You have that same thought process like, oh, if I mix this with this food, this will you know come out great and I'll get more volume. But then the next day I'm shitting myself and <laughs> and I'm so bloated that I can't do my traditional RDLs. Yeah. Maybe that wasn't worth it. I'm not going to do that again. Like, <laughs> Yeah, in my first prep, I used to have like my typical sort of lots of vegetables to kind of help satiate me. And then I'd have like literally like a liter of hot, pre-workout on top of that straight away and then i go train like all in the space of half an hour and yeah that was that was not good i couldn't wear a belt for those sessions for for obvious reasons yeah um, yeah 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 exactly right so i mean it's it's great i mean it's great to be able to reflect back on that stuff though yeah. right and just know that that there's always like small tweaks and adjustments and improvements that that you can make in your prep that that when they compound when they build upon one another could very well achieve a much more desirable result, you know, at the end. So um, I think that's one of the cool things about what we do, right? Is every season we can just get that a little bit better in terms of not only our physiques in which we're going to present, but also potentially our approach to each and every prep moving forward as well. Because mm. I think people often naturally, they think about, okay, the, the improvement season or the off season is where I make all the improvements for next time. But if you can execute your prep better, then even if you don't make any improvements in your off season, you've, you can still achieve a better result, whether it's Absolutely. through preventing uh, more muscle loss or refining your peak week approach, et cetera, reducing your stress exposure. Um, so like once you optimize both of them, now you're, now you're getting into new territory. Absolutely. Yeah. Very well said, man. I agree. Cool. Well, I think that brings us on time. We've got a spare question there for maybe next week with the boys. But uh, thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you all next week with uh, two new additional voices and uh, hope everyone has a great week ahead.